The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. So, the last lesson we were looking at how God has to be the one to provide salvation and how, you know, there's no other way. And, and uh, this just uh, throws a real wrench into the, the disciples thinking about the kingdom of God and, and uh, the truth about life on this earth. Um, say again, Al? Okay, sorry. I got my hearing's bad, so I didn't catch that. But thank you know, it's we're we're early. Maybe that's the early thing here. Um, so, does anybody have any comments while we're we're still early? We can talk about these things. Um, about walking with Jesus as as uh, they're they're headed toward Jerusalem. This is a, okay, so today we're, we're going to take a little deep, not, it's not a detour. This is actually, this is actually on the, on the way. This is not a detour at all. It's not on the outline. So this is different. This is something that it's decided, you know, as I was preparing that we should, we need to go through this and uh, it's, it's a portrait, the portrait of uh, the Messiah, scripture's portrait of the Messiah's suffering. It's a big deal. This is a big deal. And uh, this is why this is all happening. Okay. So having, having just uh, celebrated the Christmas season, y'all are, it's behind, another one behind us, right? But it, it's, uh, Christmas season is an unparalleled event in our lives. It has been all our lives, right? I mean, we've celebrated every year. Since we were born, it's a big deal in, in uh, the Western world. A lot of people would like to see that not be the case anymore, but we're going to look at that today. It's not just, uh, uh, you know, Heart of Christmas is, is in understanding not just that he came, though, right? It's uh, the why he came, why he came. And that's, uh, that's what we're going to look at today. So in Matthew one twenty one. The angel's words to Joseph were very clear as to why he came, why Jesus came. The angel said to Joseph, She, being Mary, shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, meaning Jehovah saves, for he will save his people from their sins. Now this, this identifies the purpose and the reason for Christmas right there. A Savior has come to save his people from their sins. Uh, Joseph and Mary both received this angelic message. Okay, you shall call his name Jehovah Saves. And, and they came to the shepherds. The angels came to the shepherds and gave them this message. Today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And that's why in John 4.42 he's identified as the Savior of the world. The Savior of the world. That is not to say that 
the whole world will be saved, but that the world only has one Savior. That's what that means. The overwhelming reality of Christmas is that the Savior has come. The long-awaited Savior, the final sacrifice for sin, the one who will die in the sinner's place. He has come. And that's the good news of Christmas. This is the gospel, y'all. This is the gospel. And I see Al's moving up front. Okay, well, I'm having a hard time, too. So this is work for both of us. Okay. <laughs> um, so as we, as we look through the Gospels, it becomes apparent to us that Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen to him. Okay. Still, there are many skeptics. There have been, there are now, there always will be. Those who deny that Jesus had any such idea that he might end up in such an ignominious and horrific end. Okay. Skeptics suggest that his death and, and the suffering associated with his death was the result of him stepping over the line. Okay going too far, a little too zealous, too revolutionary, result of misfortune on the one hand, or perhaps a miscalculation, a bad, unintended, unexpected end to a pretty good try on his part. That's what the skeptics say. Okay. Jesus, they would suggest, is naive, swept away by popularity, certainly too ambitious and maybe with some delusions of grandeur. In any case, the way it ended was certainly not the way he planned it. And according to the pseudo-scholars, that's how you and I have to view the death of Jesus. However, according to the Bible, from the very beginning, the angel says he will save his people from their sins. And we all know, because of all the redemptive history up to that point, as revealed in the Old Testament, that there is no salvation without a sacrifice. Okay, this is pretty clear. And there has not yet been a suitable sacrifice at that time, up to that time. He came to die as a sacrifice for sin, and this is no surprise to Jesus, no surprise to him at all. The first words ever to come out of his mouth in the New Testament are, are I must be about my father's business. The last words to come out of his mouth before his death was, it is finished. He knew why he came, and he knew when he had accomplished that purpose. Jesus knew. There's no question about that. Throughout his ministry, it was, it was clear to him where he was headed. Before the Romans knew anything about what they would do, before Judas knew anything about what he would do, before the chief priests and the rulers and the scribes knew anything about what they would do, before the drama in all of its detail played itself out in history, he knew every detail. He knew every cynical detail that would come his way. In fact, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all three record three different instances when he informed the disciples about the details of his death. Okay, let's look at Mark's record. We're going to look at Mark's record of those. 
those three, okay? So the first is chapter 8 of Mark, verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Okay. He began to teach them. Okay. And again in chapter 9, verse 31. He says, For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. So he's starting to give them a little more detail here. A little more detail. Delivered, that's a legal term. So in some form, his death will be associated with a judgment being passed against him. Okay. And then uh, in verse, uh, in chapter 10, our verses today are verses... Uh, 32 through 34, okay, and it says this, and, and they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid, and taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, see, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death. And deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Okay? This is the third prediction. And there's even more detail about what's going to happen. Okay? Let's, uh, let's stop here and just pray for, for a second, y'all. Lord, thank you for today. This is the day that you've made, Lord, day of salvation. Today is the day of salvation. Every day is a witness to your goodness and loving kindness towards the sons of men. And especially, Father, from the scriptures, we learn that, that you, you love us so much that you sent your son to, for us. Father, help us to see these things. Father, help us to order them rightly so that we can share them with others, Father, so that your glory will be seen in the earth. Through your words, Father, by the power of your spirit, Father, open these things to our hearts, Father. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So Jesus here is adding specific elements to the prediction of exactly what's going to happen to him, okay? And the reason, the reasons, there's two reasons we're going to look at, okay, that, that uh, tell us how he knew these things. Okay, the first, number one, is because he, he, he knew perfectly the Old Testament. He knew it perfectly. Number two was because of his own divine knowledge. He knew things that weren't in the scripture, and he talked about them before they happened, okay? We're going to look at that. So um, it was prophetic scripture and personal omniscience. And because of his personal knowledge of scripture and his omniscience he he knew every detail before those details were ever done or ever planned or ever thought of by men he was born to die he was born to be the savior and that required death god planned it the angels praised it and jesus predicted it the heart of scripture the heart of the christian gospel the heart of the Christmas story is the salvation of sinners through the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, about which he knew every detail. So at the end of verse 32, it says, 
he began to tell them what was going to happen to him. Now that, that can't be said of anybody except Christ. No man can say that about himself, about what's going to happen to him. No one knows the future except God, and Jesus is God. He begins to tell them in detail what was going to happen. And, and how did he know this? Um, well, we, first this prophetic scripture. Let's look at that, okay? They were, they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, okay? It's 2,500 feet above sea level and 3,800 feet above the Dead Sea, okay? And he was coming from the, the backside of the Jordan through Perea, and he was, he was moving towards Jericho, okay? Crossed the Jordan into Jericho at, at uh, the next, uh, actually, the, the two more lessons will be in Jericho, okay? So he's, uh, he's still about maybe 20 miles from Jerusalem at this point. Okay. And he was walking ahead of them. Okay. And this is an important statement. He was walking ahead of them. This points to the fact that Jesus was never dragged in Jerusalem against his own will. He was never swept up in, into Jerusalem by the euphoria of a crowd. Okay. He was never encouraged to move toward Jerusalem because the pilgrims were all sort of pushing him along, okay, for the celebration of the Passover, okay. He was himself walking ahead of his entire entourage, and this tells us that he's the leader of this parade. He's resolute as he moves firmly to the place of his own death. He knows exactly what's going to happen when he gets there, and he, was, he, he has told the disciples, and they're not in the dark about this, And they're pretty sure it could well come to pass because they already knew the hatred and animosity of the religious leaders. The disciples already knew these things. It's been uh, talked about all through as, as, they, as we approached. These things are being talked about, about uh, the circumstances regarding his entry into Jerusalem. Okay. And this was demonstrated, this animosity of the religious leaders was demonstrated against Jesus time and time again. It's, it's something they knew. Okay, it was just true. And that's why it says, the scripture says they were amazed. They were amazed. You know, why would he be walking to his own death? He seemed to be resolute. He was out front. He was, he was, he was going to this place. And, uh, When it says they were amazed, it's most likely referring to the 12 because they had the details of what was going to happen to him. Um, they were amazed at his courage and they were amazed at his conviction because they wanted to run in fear. This was not something that they wanted to go through. Nobody wants to, to go you know, see a friend's death, much, much let alone your own death. It's just not something you want to do. And those who followed, this would be the, the wider group of disciples and followers that were more than just the 12, they were fearful 
And that's basically a word that refers to the kind of fear that is baffling kind of fear. Like, what is going on? They don't, they don't see it. What is he doing? Why, why, is he, why is he doing this? Why is he walking into deadly danger? Why is he doing that? This, this is one of the very vivid and dramatic portraits of our Lord. Jesus going to his death resolutely, pulling along his confused, frightened, and startled and amazed followers. Now for the apostles, their expectation was pretty grim. In John 11, when Jesus told them, we're going to Jerusalem, it was Thomas's response to say, let's go and die with him. Let's go and die with him. A little bit fatalistic. So in order to prepare the disciples for this, he pulls them aside. He pulls the 12 aside. And he began to tell them what was going to happen in, in greater detail. And it's important for this. This is important to understand why he took them aside. Because it was uh, bad enough when it did happen, when these things happened. Okay. Even though he told them it was going to happen, they still denied him. They still fled. They ran. They were terrorized. Terrified. It's hard to comprehend the level of terror that they would have experienced. But if they hadn't been told, it probably would have been even worse. Okay. And the fact that they had been told it was going to happen it was a reality check for them later on. Because he'd said, this is exactly what's going to happen to me. And when it was settled in their hearts, when it was settled in their hearts, it drew them back. Okay? So there's purpose for him telling them these things. So they could see who he was. They could see his, his understanding of the scripture and his personal omniscience. So it, it's safe to say, though, that these men were raised in Judaism... And they would, have been, they would have been exposed to the Old Testament, being raised up in synagogue school, as, as young boys were at the time. So, it's pretty safe to assume they had knowledge of the Old Testament. However, the rabbinic approach to the Old Testament of that time, long before and ever since, even since then, right up to the modern era, is not an approach that would yield a faithful understanding of Scripture. This is sad, but true. Rabbis, then, could give you some practical wisdom, wisdom or some psychological insight. They might have skill in sorting out the issues of life, but when they began to approach the interpretation of Scripture, they have run off the rails. Because long ago, they decided that there needed to be in order to sort of give them a place in the sun, an esoteric, almost Gnostic, elevated, secret, mystical knowledge of Scripture. Their interpretation was way off. And these, these disciples were, had been exposed to this, and this is what they believed and knew. But it was wrong. It was, it was a wrong interpre interpretation. <coughs> And the people have been exposed to this for centuries, actually, this kind of thinking. There was no real connection between human reason and an accurate interpretation of the scripture. 
So we can safely say that under the influence of the Pharisees and scribes in that kind of tradition, with a bizarre, kind of bizarre mystical hermeneutic, these men didn't really have a good understanding of the Old Testament. Okay? They did not have a good understanding. But on the other side, then again, they did know. There were some things they knew. Uh, when Herod asked the chief priest, well, where does it say in the Old Testament that he's going to be born? They knew immediately. They knew Bethlehem. So they had some understanding. Okay? There were some things that were obvious enough to be known, but the problem is that they really don't know the Old Testament. And the messianic prophecies of the Old Testament well enough to see their fulfillment. They just can't see it. And remember, after his crucifixion and resurrection, Jesus walks with a couple of disciples on the road to Emmaus. Okay? And he opens the Old Testament to them. He opens it for them. In Luke 24, he explains these things to him. It was all there. It's all there in the Old Testament. The Old Testament uh, doesn't appear in, in verse 32 of Mark 10, but in the parallel account in Luke, Luke gives us, uh, the, there's three predictions also of his death and resurrection, okay? And here's what Luke writes. All things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. This is what Jesus says in Luke 18, 31. All things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. He was telling them all things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man. He was talking to them all the way on this tour. He was talking to them. It's not necessarily recorded in Scripture. It's just there's three instances, but he keeps bringing it up. He keeps bringing it up. And, he, and they knew, okay? Now, how did he know what was coming? Well, it's because we've, we've mentioned it. It's because of prophetic Scripture. And uh, anyone who knew Scripture could have seen that, could have seen it coming. If you start putting it together. His death was promised in the Old Testament, and not in some generic way, but it was very specific, in a very specific way. So, first of all, it's pretty obvious that in the Old Testament, there had to be a, a sacrificial system. God mandated a sacrificial system. There had to be a sacrifice. Why did God mandate it? Because it kept pointing out that the wages of sin is death and that God will accept a substitute sacrifice in the place of the sinner. But there's never a sacrifice that ends the need for another sacrifice and another and another in the Old Testament. It just keeps going, keeps going. So all of them are waiting for the final sacrifice and they understand that the wages of sin was death, but that God would provide a sacrifice. They knew that from the Old Testament. They did know that. So starting with Adam and Eve, though, they learned that God, by means of a sacrifice, will cover the sinner's guilt. Okay. From Abel, they learned that there aren't many acceptable sacrifices. There's only one acceptable sacrifice. From Abraham... They learned it was a sacrifice which God himself would provide. 
And from the Passover, they learned it had to be a lamb without blemish and without spot. So there's a, there's a trail through the Old Testament here pointing right to the Messiah. They had made sacrifices their whole lives. So looking at the Old Testament's uh, general tenor, it should be, not be a shock that a sacrifice was going to be required for these men. And Jesus had been introduced by John the Baptist with these words, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, it's not only these things, but from Psalm 2, the scriptures tell us that they would have, uh, uh, if if these scriptures were understood by the disciples, they would understand the rage of his enemies against him because it's expressed right there in Psalm chapter 2. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing okay if they knew Zechariah 13 they would have understood that he would be deserted by his friends if they knew Zechariah 11 they would have known that he would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver they understand the implications of numbers 21 and the lifting up of the serpent in the wilderness they would have been able to see perhaps in some fashion that the Son of Man would eventually be lifted up on a cross. That's the picture of the cross. If they understand, understood Psalm 34, they would have known that none of his bones would be broken on the cross. If they understood Psalm 22, they would have known that his clothes would be gambled for. If they had understood Psalm 69, they would have known that he was being given vinegar to drink by witless people who were fulfilling a specific prophecy. And again, in in Psalm 22, verse 1, they would have understood the cry, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And again, in verse 31, they would have known the cry, It is finished. It's all there in in the Old Testament, his whole life. Jesus knew these scriptures, and he saw it coming. He knew it was coming. Zechariah 12 talks about the spear thrust into his side. Psalm 16 talks about his resurrection. And Psalm 110 even talks about his ascension into heaven. So many details surrounding his death and clearly in the Old Testament. And surely they hadn't been exposed, uh, lived their whole life without being exposed to Isaiah 53. The servant substitute, the servant sacrifice who provides redemption for sinners, who is wounded for their transgressions and bruised for their iniquities. The Lord was on his way to the cross and on the way he explained to them the Old Testament prophecies that he would fulfill. He knew his Old Testament, and he reiterated it for them. Okay, earlier in Luke 9.51, it says he set his face to go to Jerusalem, and he went there for the specific reason of fulfilling the very prophecies the Old, Old Testament prophets had specified in, in, the, in the Scripture. Now, you know, this is a great defense of the integrity of our Lord's life and mission and the scriptures themselves. 
against all accusations of the skeptics. If he went to the cross, this is the whole point. He did go to the cross, and this is the whole point. Okay? The Old Testament revealed many specific details, and he knew them because he knew the scripture. And they should have known some of this. They should have known, but they didn't. How many times did Jesus say to the leaders of Israel, search the scriptures, search the scriptures? Did you not know? Do you not know? Have you not heard? Have you not read? How many times did he say that to them? He called out their ignorance of their own text because they were so adept at misinterpreting it, not because they hadn't read it. Okay? They all should have known some of the details of his death. Okay, secondly, not only did he know the Old Testament scriptures about himself very well, but he knew... uh, he had a perfect knowledge, and having a perfect knowledge of its interpretation, but he knew what was coming by personal omniscience also. He just knew things that the scripture writes down that nobody else could have known. Okay? There were things not revealed in the Old Testament that no one could know unless one knows the future. Okay? In verse 33, he says, We're going to Jerusalem. And this is startling, but essential. He will be the sacrifice that God will provide, which is spoken of in Genesis 22 to Abraham. The final perfect sacrifice. He will be the true Passover lamb without blemish, without spot, who will finally satisfy the justice of God with his sacrifice. He will open the way to God's presence and provide salvation and eternal life for all who put their trust in him, for everyone. He's going to Jerusalem and that's the plan and there's no alternative. There's no alternative. So he says the Son of Man will be delivered. The Son of Man will be delivered. That's betrayal. That's the scheming religious aristocrats that will condemn him to death. There will be some kind of legality that will sentence him to death. He will be executed, but not by the Jews. He will be handed over to the Gentiles, who before they execute him will mock him, spit on him, and scourge him. Then they'll kill him. See, this is not written in the Old Testament, but Jesus is telling his disciples this is exactly what's going to happen to him. Pretty scary stuff. And again, three days later, he's going to rise. He says every, every time he tells them about these things, Three days later, he will rise. He tells him these things. No one else could know that. Jesus knew it. He because of his personal omniscience. Okay, each of these things came to pass exactly as he predicted it. All the details are in the Scripture. Even in the, in the Gospels, it's it's all tied together in his life and death. So does it surprise you all that Jesus would uh, know things that no other person could know? He knew exactly the history of the, the, the uh, strange woman he had never seen in his life, but he, 
He met her at a well, and he knew her entire marital history. He knew precisely uh, where there would be a colt that he could ride into the city of Jerusalem, and he knew the conversation that would occur when his disciples would, would meet up with the owner of the colt. He knew these things. How do you do that? Well, that's, that's personal omniscience, which only God has. He knew precisely about a man who was carrying a pitcher that his disciples would meet as they went into Jerusalem for a place to have their last supper. Okay, he forecast in detail the destruction of Jerusalem 40 years before it happened, that, that one stone would not be left upon another. He, know these, he knows these things because God knows all things. He's called the Son of Man, which is primarily a messianic term, and it's to say that the Son of God will also be human. Okay? He's therefore the Son of God, Son of Man, Messiah. He is the Messiah. He's the one that the Scriptures point to. And he'll be delivered. Again, it's a betrayal. It's, which is, it's an agonizing reality to be betrayed. Um... I wonder if there are people alive who've never been betrayed at some point or felt betrayed. Yeah, I think we, we could probably all speak of that in this room. It's, it's, it's a, a type of suffering. And he was betrayed. Okay? It's a horrible thing to be wounded like that in the house of your friends, people you trust. It's a difficult thing. Psalm 41, verse 9, describes Judas. It talks about Judas being his old familiar friend with whom he broke bread. He would be the one who would betray him, and Jesus knew this. Even though the disciples didn't know, they kept asking him, Who is it, Lord? Who is it? The disciples didn't know, but Jesus knew. This is personal omniscience. And he knew the horrible pain of betrayal from a man in whose presence he had performed divine miracles for three years, and who had seen everything about his character and the virtue of his life. And still, wanted from him only power and money. And when he couldn't get it, he got as much money as he could and he ran. And he hung himself in shame. Jesus knew all this about Judas. Jesus knew all of it. He was also not only betrayed, but he was rejected. And rejected by a most unlikely group, the chief priests and the scribes. You might think there might be some bad high priest who would reject him or maybe a small group of bad priests, but they were all in it, all of them together. We're talking about the entire religious aristocracy of the land of Israel, the gatekeepers of Judaism, top to bottom. Now there were some except there, were, there was Nicodemus and a few others, but there were some exceptions, but for the most part, it, they were shouted down, the people that objected to this, treatment of Jesus were shouted down. 
It involved the high priest, the former high priest who, who kept their title. These would be the elite among the elite. And then all the priests all the way down the line. There's priests who, who would direct the weekly course, what's called the weekly course. And they would come into Jerusalem for two weeks a year to be the sacrificial priests. And they would become butchers for two weeks. And they will handle, would handle all the sacrifices in, in Jerusalem for that, those two weeks at the temple. And another course would come in after them, after two weeks. And then they were the directors of the daily course. Okay? Every day, there were morning and evening sacrifices. Some days, there were multiple sacrifices, and someone officiated over the actual sacrifices themselves, according to the law. So there were at least seven temple overseers and treasurers, the financial officers, all the way down to the Levites, who serve and attend to the work of the priest. All of them, everybody, they influenced everybody. They rejected Jesus. Everybody did. Then there are the scribes. Most of them were Pharisees. Legalists. Some were Sadducees or liberals. Call them liberals. The entire group, all of them collectively, rejected Jesus. Everybody. You know, priests are a hereditary aristocracy in this point. Born... Uh, below, below them are the scribes, which would be an intellectual aristocracy. Together they reject the Messiah. This is the leaders of the nation rejecting their Messiah. And how far did they go? Well, they condemned him to death. And that's the horrendous story of the details of the trials of Jesus' of Jesus's life and death. That's the details. It's all t told in the scripture. It's all exposed for us to see and know. So Jesus was once before the high priest, then he was before Pilate, and then before Herod, then back to Pilate, and condemned, 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 all the way down the line. All these people in authority condemned him. With no legitimate witnesses and no legitimate accusations. Pilate even said, I find no fault in it. He tried to wash his hands of the whole affair. It's the greatest miscarriage of justice in human history. Jesus is condemned to die with nothing legitimate to prove his guilt. There was no guilt. He was an innocent, he is the only innocent man to ever live. The magnificent person of Jesus, the only sinless one, who was betrayed and rejected and then condemned to death. And he said it was going to happen, and it did happen exactly the way he said it was going to happen. So if we think about the, the pro proportion of Jesus' suffering, it's, just, it's staggering. It's just staggering, the way he suffered. That's why I've Isaiah 53 calls him a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. These sorrows were profound. Why? 
because he knew what was coming and he suffered long before he actually suffered the reality of those things. He knew what was coming. The New Testament talks about the sufferings, plural, of Jesus. So this is what Isaiah 53 says about the words that they're spoken about Jesus' suffering. Okay? Ugly, despised, rejected, sorrowful, grieved, smitten by God, afflicted, wounded, bruised, chastened, whipped, alone, oppressed, killed, buried, put to grief, in travail of soul, numbered with transgressors, poured out his soul to death, bearing sin, having borne sin. It's a tremendous list of sufferings. We've already talked about the disloyalty, the betrayal, rejection and condemnation, but there's another one. How about ridicule? It starts in verse 34 of chapter 10. The Gentiles will begin to mock him, spit on him, and scourge him. 1 Peter 2.23 says, through all of this, he never retaliated. He never retaliated. He never got angry once. Not once. The suffering was horrific. These are hateful gestures beyond description. He suffered profound injuries to his body. He was scourged in a savage way. But it's not just that. It's all that he suffered in the context of being hated and rejected. Which reached its apex according to Matthew's gospel when he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? says in Hebrews that that his uh, for the joy that was set before him it's really unusual that that he never got angry that's anybody else would lash out defend themselves he never did it for the joy that was set before him and so here he is on the road to Jerusalem and he's out ahead of everybody else and they're like it's almost like they're, they're dragging behind him. He's dragging them forward. Why is he going to, what is he doing? He knows these things. Why is he doing it? What's he doing? He, he drags them along. His confused disciples in the crowd. Why does he do that? You know, if, if uh, your friends were in chains over there because they'd gotten angry and hurt someone or if they had stolen from someone because they were hungry what would you do what would you do for them you go visit them in jail that's what the scripture says we should do would you be helpful to them would you give them food well Jesus was resolute on, on his way to Jerusalem because he knew we were in chains without him 
there was nothing else for us only separation from God and he was resolute he was determined because of his loving kindness for us this is God's giving his son to the world someone who cares about us and loves us like this okay in Matthew 20 verse 19 he said they would kill him by crucifixion he told him that bluntly he told him you know death by crucifixion it's it's an indescribable horror you, you all probably heard of someone talk about that from pulpit right around Easter time well this is right after Christmas this is why he came One writer says that death by crucifixion seems to increase all the pain and death can have of the horrible and ghastly. Dizziness, cramps, thirst, starvation, sleeplessness, traumatic fever, tetanus, shame, continuous torment, horror of anticipation of death, mortification of intended wounds, all intensified just to the point where they can all be endured but all stopping short the point with which the sufferer would have the relief of unconsciousness the unnatural position he was in made every movement painful the arteries especially at the head and stomach became swollen and oppressed and surcharged blood surcharged with blood and while each misery went on gradually increasing there was added the intolerable pain of a burning and raging thirst and an internal anxiety which made the prospect of death welcome He knows all of this is coming. He's known it. His suffering was personally planned by God himself. As recorded in the Old Testament, personally known by God in detail through his own omniscience, and he lived in the anticipation of this agony long before he ever experienced it. Do you all think about you when you're going to die? Do you all ever think about that? About that? I think everybody, I think it's, it's actually healthy for Christians because we're going to die and we're in Christ. To live is Christ. To die is gain. Now the story didn't end here. As bad as it is, as terrible as it is, it, it, it doesn't end there. Always, in all three of, the, of his predictions, he says this, after three days he will rise. And he did. He knew he was going to rise, and he did. He said at the beginning of his ministry in John 2, 19, destroy this body, and in three days I will raise it up. And he did it. He said he would die, and he said he would rise with the details happening exactly the way he said it would happen. Who can do that? Who does that? That's God himself showing us 
who he is. And this is how we answer anyone who would, we would come across. This is the truth of what the scriptures say about our Messiah, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. He came to save his people from their sins, and that's exactly what he did. He did it on the cross, and he did it through the resurrection. This is why, this is the why Christmas is so important. This is why every day is important. Today is the day of salvation. It all goes right back to that day. This, this period of time in Jerusalem, in the last week of Jesus' life, and in his resurrection. It's so important. That baby, baby was the Savior, is the Savior of the world. Okay. Now, what fool would deny that this is the Son of God? You literally have to be. Close, turn away, close your eyes, you can't hear it. Only a fool would say this is not the Son of God. This is not the Savior of the world. Knowing these things that Scripture says, or with a correct interpretation, and hearing of Jesus' personal omniscience, and how his life played out. To deny it is folly. It's just folly. So we are walking with Jesus. He's on the way to Jerusalem. I thought it was a good time to just take a, do a reminder here of why he was going. These, these three verses here are his third time in Mark where he talks about the details of his death and why he's going to Jerusalem. And they're all slowly, it's almost like they're getting ready to stop and maybe go backwards. They, they, they know it. The, the disciples have an inkling of what's going on. But he is resolute. Because without it, we have nothing. He becomes, he's everything. He's everything in this. Okay? Even today, we're to follow him. Remembering this, knowing this about our own lives, we died with Christ when he died, and yet we live. But it's not us that live, it's Christ that lives in us. What will we do now? What do we do now? How do we prepare ourselves knowing this, these things? Any, 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 uh, anything? Hey, he, he, his going to the cross is our model of humility. Have this mind in you that was also in Christ Jesus. How do we prepare ourselves? Well, we're doing it right now. We're going to do it when we hear the message. We do it when we get together, as, even with other brothers and sisters in Christ, remembering that Jesus told his disciples earlier that when you receive one of these little ones in my name, you're receiving me. When you receive another Christian, you receive Christ. How you treat another Christian is how you treat Christ. The example of humility is the cross. He is our, our example, our model. Okay. Last week, we heard about um, the rich young ruler. Jesus explained to his disciples that these things are impossible with us. But with God, all things are possible. And this is why. This is why. Next week, we're going to look at um, 
what it means to be a leader in God's house. And basically, you all know it. Whoever is greatest among you will be servant of all. Servant of all. That's what a leader is in God's house. And that goes right against the way the world does it. The world is competing. Who's going to have the most? I want the most popularity. I want the most money. Money will get me what I want. It will in this world, but it won't in the next world. Not even close. You are, you know, who, if you think that, you remember Peter and Simeon, the guy that tried to purchase Peter. Peter rebuked him very strongly for thinking he could purchase salvation with money. Okay, it's not the case. But people think it. They believe it. They believe that if, if, if I can just make that grade, people will accept me. And the world's hurting. There's a lot of hurting people out there, especially during these times, y'all. Especially when there's so much fraud going on. Fraud everywhere. And, and then we're all supposed to come together. It's insane. If I can just use a word. You guys might have another word. Any, you guys have anything on, on any of this? All this? Any of this? Well, I hope the Lord has quickened you in these things by his Holy Spirit to know how much Jesus loves you and did this. He did this for us and he did it for other people too in the world. That haven't been, it hasn't been revealed yet that they're part of the elect. But it will be. It will be. He's going he's gonna to complete the work that he started way back when and, and, and finished in Christ Jesus and now is perfecting us by becoming like Jesus and, and, and completing the plan, doing the work. I hope you all are involved with things. I know you are. I, know, I thank you all for doing it. You all are loving each other. It's a big deal. It's a huge deal. And uh, this is what we're called to. Um, if you guys have any, any, any comments on the way this is going, I'd like to hear about them. You can text, or text me or send me an email. Love to hear about it. Love. Melody's going to critique me when we, when we have a, a minute together. And I, I love to hear that. I love to hear it. I need to hear it, y'all. Uh, I know I get stiff sometimes and I start reading, but it, it, this stuff is it's just so important. And uh, we're all learning how to deny ourselves and, and uh, follow, pick up our cross and follow him. Glorify God. He glorified God in that. The glory of God was revealed on the cross. You see your sin on him and his loving kindness. It changes you. It changes everything. It changes everything. What time are we doing on time? Ooh, we're, let's pray, y'all. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for the, the, the hearts, the souls that are here, Father. You've purposed to do these things for and in because of your loving kindness in Christ Jesus for us. What a gracious God. What a loving God. In the midst of so much horrific things going on, so many things going on in the world, Lord, we, I just lift up my brothers and sisters in Christ who are serving in other parts of the world, who love you, Lord, who, who are denying themselves. Oh, my, are they denying themselves. They're so focused on you, Lord. I, I just bless them today, Lord, with 
with encouragement and strength, even with physical blessing, Father. Cause us to be the blessing to, to those who need it, even here in our own community, Lord, that we'd be willing to, to step up, Lord, to follow after Jesus and step in and pick up the pace, so to speak. Pick up the pace, follow hard after him because he's, he, he completed that work, Lord. It's finished for us. We have the blessing of your loving kindness. No more wrath from, from God. We can endure the wrath of men, Lord, even for but a season, knowing that you love us and care for us. And bless, bless your word as it's preached today, Father. Bless our time together so that your name is glorified and that good is brought into our lives and the lives of others. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.